Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match. Which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morning cup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. Today's story is the stuff of true crime legends. On November 29th, 1827, two men, quite by chance, started a life of crime that would, in a matter of months, turn into a full-blown killing spree. 
So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. The early 19th century was a time for growth and a time for science. And in Europe, the leading center for such changes, especially the advances in anatomical study, lay in the heart of Edinburgh, Scotland. But with that growth came the desperate shortage of one very important study tool, the cadaver. During this time period, an anatomist named Robert Knox, a fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, who, according to the research, quote, single-handedly raised the profile of the study of anatomy in Britain, was completing about two dissections a day. And because he advertised a, quote, full demonstration on fresh anatomical subjects for his 400 or so pupils, he needed fresh corpses at a pretty steady rate. Enter two men whose names would remain in the true crime dialogue centuries after their crimes. William Burke was born in 1792 in Ernie County, Tyrone, Ireland, and after serving in the British Army, getting married briefly, and deserting his wife and moving to Scotland, he settled into the home with Helen McDougall and made her his second wife. After a few years of marriage with Burke working in the canals, the pair moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh in November of 1827 and became hawkers, selling secondhand clothing to make ends meet. That was the same year that, quite by chance, he met a man named William Hare while working on the harvest in Midlothian with Helen. Very little is known about the life of William Hare prior to meeting William Burke. We do know that at some point he started lodging at Tanner's Close in the home of Margaret Laird and her husband. When he died in 1826, Hare simply stayed put and, according to most accounts, married Margaret shortly thereafter. When Burke and Helen finished their work and returned to Edinburgh, the couple moved in with his new friend. Now, all of this seemed innocent enough, but with the demand for cadavers only growing as the science advanced, a Scottish law in place put a damper on the supply that opened a window for criminal activity. As the law stated, the only cadavers that could be used for dissections were the ones who died in prison, from suicide, or were the bodies of foundlings and orphans. So while some scientists were keen to sit around and wait for someone in those categories to die, others saw a chance at a new business venture when the legal supply started to run short. That's when the business of resurrection men grew in popularity. Students, lecturers, and grave robbers who exhumed bodies in the cover of night and delivered them to a grateful professor. For a fee, of course. Eight pounds in the summer and ten pounds in the winter. And since the laws about grave robbing only pertain to their belongings and not the body themselves, there was very little authorities could do with the morally gray area. Of course, not everyone agreed with the practice. And by the 1820s, residents were protesting the increasing practice and to avoid their loved ones becoming the next subject of a lecture, guards were hired to protect graves, watchtowers were built in cemeteries, cages were placed over grave sites, and some families placed large stone slabs over their graves to protect their deceased family members until they were far too decomposed to use. This, of course, did little to slow down the practice and friends Burke and Hare, seeing the opportunity for a payout, decided to partake in the business of resurrection men. On November 29, 1827, a man named Donald was lodging at the Hare home and, quite suddenly, died of dropsy shortly before receiving the pension that he was going to use to pay his back rent. 
As Hare complained about his financial loss to his friend, the pair decided to sell Donald's body and split the difference. A local parish paid to have a carpenter make Donald a coffin, and when he left, the men simply removed the body, hid it under the bed, filled the coffin with a heavy bark from a local tanner, and resealed it. No one was the wiser, and Donald was buried. The pair took the body to Edinburgh University to look for a purchaser. They asked for directions to a Professor Monroe, but a student sent them instead to Robert Knox. They were paid just over seven pounds, Hare got his four pounds, and Burke got the rest. According to a later confession, when the men went to leave the university, one of Robert's assistants said they, quote, would be glad to see them again when they had another to dispose of. Seeing an opportunity to get the leg up on the competition, Burke and Hare came up with a dastardly plan. While there is no true consensus on the order in which Burke and Hare committed their crimes, due in large part to two vastly different confessions, many can agree that the first official murder attributed to the deadly duo came in either January or February of 1828 and was either a miller named Joseph who was lodging at the Hare's home or a woman named Abigail Simpson, a salt seller. Some say Joseph is likely the first victim and was suffering from a fever while staying with the family and had become delirious. Hare and his wife were concerned about having a potentially infectious lodger and how it would affect their business. So they decided to turn to Burke, who gave him some whiskey before lying across his upper torso, stifling his movement while Hare suffocated him. The two-man technique would forever be known as Burking. The body was then taken to Robert Knox and the men were paid 10 pounds. The next two victims in a highly debated order were both Abigail Simpson and a male lodger from Cheshire. He, like Joseph, fell ill while staying with the Hares and was killed in the same burking method. Abigail, who was killed on February 12, 1828, was invited to the Hare home where she was plied with enough alcohol to make her docile murdered and placed her in a tea chest that was then transported to the professor who was so pleased he was getting a steady stream of extremely fresh corpses that he didn't ask any questions. An elderly woman invited into the home by Margaret Hare followed soon thereafter. She was given enough whiskey to fall asleep and then was placed under the mattress cover until she suffocated. That April, Burke met Mary Patterson and Janet Brown in Canongate, and after buying them some drinks, brought them back to his lodging for some breakfast. Instead, they ended up at his brother's house, and after Mary fell asleep at the table, he and Janet continued talking. They were soon interrupted by Helen McDougall, who accused the pair of having an affair. Burke and Helen began fighting, him throwing a glass near her head and Janet running off. Mary, however, remained passed out at the table. So Burke sent for Hare and his wife. The pair locked the women out of the room and murdered Mary in her sleep. Her body was then taken to the professor, which was still warm upon delivery. And feeling as though he recognized the young woman, Burke explained that she had drank herself to death and simply bought her off a woman in Canongate. When Janet came looking for her friend, she was told she ran off with a traveling salesman. Mrs. Haldane, a lodger at the Hare home, became the next victim after she drunkenly fell asleep in the stable. She was smothered and sold to Knox. Several months later, Mrs. Haldale's daughter also came to lodge at the Hare's home, and after drinking with Burke for a few hours, she became a victim just like her mother. 
In total, and over the course of 10 months, Burke and Hare killed about 16 individuals that were then sold for a profit. There was an older female lodger who was killed in May of 1828 by Burke alone. Then came Effie, a cinder gatherer who was an acquaintance of Burke's, a woman who was too drunk to stand and Burke offered to take her home from a local constable who agreed, and the two lodgers who were described as, quote, an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. She was killed first while he sat at the fire and whose murder disturbed Burke more than any of the others. On June 24th, Burke and Helen went off to visit her father in Falkirk, and when they returned, he noticed his business partner, who was so short on cash he was pawning off his clothes, seemed to be wearing all new clothing and had a sudden surplus of money. After denying Burke's suspicion that he sold a body without him, Knox confirmed what Burke had already knew, and a rift between the pair started to form. So much so that they came to blows and Burke and Helen moved from Hare's home and into his cousin's house two streets away from Tanner's close. The discourse didn't last long, though, and by late September, early October, Hare was visiting with his friend when they drunkenly decided to kill a woman named Mrs. Ostler, a washerwoman who came to do some laundry. She was delivered to the college that same day. A week later, they killed one of Helen's relatives, Anne Dougal, who was visiting from Falkirk, and around this time, Margaret Hare suggested killing Helen on the grounds that they, quote, could not trust her as she was a Scotswoman. He refused. The next victim was an 18-year-old boy named James Wilson. James was both mentally and physically disabled and a familiar face amongst the streets of Edinburgh. That November, Hare lured the boy to his lodgings and sent for his partner. Together, they led James to a bedroom, but to their dismay, the boy preferred snuff over whiskey. With their usual means for subdual out the window, the pair struggled to overpower the strong young man, eventually prevailing and killing him in their normal manner. Burke, as a trophy, kept his snuff box and Hare his snuff spoon. When the body was delivered to Knox and his students, several of them recognized the body that lay on their autopsy table. Knox denied their suspicion, but before long, word of his disappearance started to circulate throughout the city. In response, James's body became the front of the line for the professor's next lecture. The final victim of Burke and Hare was a woman named Margaret Doherty, who was killed on Halloween night in 1828. Burke lured her away by claiming his mother was also a Doherty, and after a night of drinking, Burke left her in the company of Helen McDougall while he went to get his partner. The duo paid two other lodgers to go stay at Hare's home for the evening, so they weren't around when Margaret was killed. And as the drinking continued into the night, Margaret Hare joined in on the festivities. At around 9 p.m., the lodgers they relocated, Anne and James Gray, returned to collect some of their items and found Burke, Hare, their wives, and Margaret Doherty drunkenly singing and dancing. After coming to blows about something unknown, the pair reconciled, killed Margaret, and put her body into a pile of straw at the end of the bed. The very next day, the Greys returned once more and were suspicious when Burke would not let Anne approach the bed where she had left her stockings. They were left alone in the home and decided to do some digging. They were horrified when they happened upon the woman's body and, on their way to alert the police, they were stopped by Helen McDougall, who attempted to bribe them with 10 pounds a week to keep their mouths shut. 
They refused and went straight to the police, but by the time they had arrived, Margaret's body was nowhere to be found. After a few conflicting statements, the officers went to Knox's dissecting room and the next morning found the body that they were looking for. It was identified by James Gray as the woman he saw drinking with the couple the night in question. The couples were both arrested on November 3rd, 1828. After Burke and Hare were charged with murder, the police questioned Robert Knox, who claimed as far as he knew, the pair simply brought him bodies they purchased from poor lodging houses around Edinburgh. He claimed to have no clue that they were murdering these men and women. Police knew someone was lying and were even pretty certain that there were more victims. But with no bodies and everyone's stories differing, there was concern if they would ever secure a conviction of at least one of the four people they had behind bars. The investigation was complicated even further when the press got hold of the story and started to report inaccurate and speculative stories to sell more papers. Soon, everyone assumed that any and all missing persons from Edinburgh were simply victims of Burke and Hare. But after someone identified his clothing, on November 19th, a warrant for the murder of Jamie Wilson was made against all four suspects. In hopes of extracting an accurate confession, Sir William Ray, the Lord Advocate, chose to offer Hare immunity in exchange for a full cooperation, realizing that this may be his only way of getting a conviction. Hare did as expected and made a full confession in exchange for his immunity. And because he could not testify against his own wife, she too was exempt from prosecution. On December 4th, formal charges were laid against Burke and Helen McDougall for the murders of Mary Patterson, James Wilson, and Mrs. Doherty. Knox was, with Hare's confession, completely exonerated. After a complicated, very dramatic trial, one in which Hare attempted to paint Burke as the sole killer in Mrs. Doherty's murder, and each murder was tried separately, Burke was found guilty of the murder of Mrs. Doherty, while Helen McDougall was not. She was returned home and, almost immediately, confronted by an angry mob and chased into the police building, which was overtaken by the mob and she had to escape out the back window. She then left Edinburgh the next day and, since then, there are no clear accounts of her actions. On January 3rd, 1829, on the advice of a Catholic priest and Presbyterian clergy, Burke made another confession and placed much of the blame on Hare. Thirteen days later, a petition on the behalf of James Wilson's sister and mother, protesting Hare's immunity, was taken into consideration by the court and rejected in a 4-2 to two vote. Margaret was released on January 19th and traveled to Glasgow to find passage back to Ireland. While awaiting the ship, an angry mob attacked her as well. She eventually made it back to Ireland and, for the most part, fell off the face of the earth. William Burke was hanged on January 28th, 1829, in front of a crowd of about 25,000 onlookers who paid for decent seats. On February 1st, his corpse was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe, and so many people wanted to view this event that another mob broke out when the seats had to be limited. Instead, students were allowed to pass through the theater in batches after the dissection. At the end, the professor dipped a quill in his blood and wrote down, This is written in the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. His blood was taken from his head. 
His skeleton was given to the Anatomical Museum of Edinburgh Medical School, where, as of 2018, it still stands while a book bound in his skin and his death mask remain at the Surgeon's Hall Museum. William Hare was released on February 5th, 1829, after staying in prison a bit longer for his own protection. He was eventually taken from Edinburgh in disguise and taken to Dumfries, where he was recognized by a fellow passenger on the mail coach, who was the junior counsel representing the Wilson family. He informed the other passengers of Hare's real identity, and upon arrival, Hare was greeted by a large mob and had to have police arrange a decoy coach to try and help him escape. He was taken to the town's prison for safekeeping, and the mob threw stones through the windows and smashed the nearby street lamps. No one wanted Hare to make it out alive. He was eventually snuck out of the building and, like the women involved in the murders, was never seen nor heard from ever again. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on November 30th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.